modern Russian propaganda doesn't really try and convince anyone of one single truth. What it does is try and muddy the waters, throw out so many noisy, contradictory uh, versions of events that the viewer is left exhausted, that he or she throws her hands up and decides that the entire pursuit uh, of truth is uh, impossible, and maybe there is no such thing as truth, and so what's the point? Welcome to Portals, a new podcast series giving you a virtual taste of the International Literature Festival Dublin. I'm Kaylin Hogan and I'll be speaking with six different writers around the world, taking you beyond your radius. This month marks 20 years since Putin was sworn in as President of Russia. I'm very excited to be speaking today with Joshua Yaffa, Moscow correspondent for The New Yorker and author of the compelling new book, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition and Compromise in Putin's Russia, published by Granta. Thank you so much, Joshua, for taking the time to be with us today. And I wanted to start just with asking you uh, how the situation is there. You're based in Moscow, have been for many years. Uh, how have things been changing uh, due to the pandemic in, in the last few weeks? I guess one thing about this pandemic, uh, which makes it strange, but but somehow perhaps understandable in ways that other crises aren't, is how it seems like people are experiencing it pretty similarly the world over. It turns out being stuck in your apartment feels awfully similar, whether you're in Moscow or uh, New York or Dublin um, or uh, my family at home in in California. So there's um, something unifying, I guess, about that um, experience and and strangely kind of um, repeatable or or, um, somewhat um, more familiar than I might have suspected. So I'm I'm at home uh, in Moscow. Um, We've been under lockdown here or, or, or quarantine measures for about six weeks, I guess. They came a bit later to Russia than elsewhere in Europe and even in the US. It wasn't until around April 1st that uh, the city of Moscow uh, shut down and, and, and went into this um, forced um, uh, quarantine. But the experience of that, I think, is you know what it's like in, in lots of places. And you just did a recent po- uh, report on sort of far-flung oil towns in, I think, in, near the Arctic Circle. And so have you been reporting them from a distance, I guess? Sure, just like everybody, right? I guess it's the only kind of journalism available to us um, these days. Uh, it's a, That's been a bit of a learning curve for me, but, but like so many things from this pandemic and, and the habits we've been forced to acquire during it, I wonder if it'll be skills... Uh, or techniques that I'll keep with me even after. It turns out you can actually do a lot through social media, finding people on social media, writing to them on the social media accounts, then trying to get them on the phone or even just having text conversations with them. Of course, I don't wanna ever lose that in-person kind of tactile repertorial experience. That's what makes the job interesting, frankly, if, it, if that you take that aspect out, I'm not sure the, uh, the whole profession has quite the same appeal for me, but nonetheless, you can do a lot more than I might have realized in my kind of previous life. I thought, well, you know, if you're not 
putting your notebook in your backpack and hopping on a plane or something, then it's not worth doing. It's not real journalism. But uh, of course, that that was probably never true and and, and been proven true, at least to me, uh, in this uh, in this time. So that's a lesson I I hope to uh, keep with me. We're speaking to you in Moscow and in Moscow time, which is two hours ahead of, of us in Ireland. But in your book, you mentioned how, you know, that's just one of, I think, 11 time zones in Russia, which just shows the enormity of, right. of the country. And as a reporter trying to cover, you know, such a diverse um, country, it, it must be a real challenge, especially under under lockdown. Yeah. And, and frankly, uh, not under lockdown. It's it's a challenge. I grew up in uh, California. I'm from San Diego. And there is a direct flight from Moscow to Los Angeles on Aeroflot. That's the quickest, um, or at least most direct way to get back to California uh, from here. And that flight, I think, is you know about ten or eleven hours. Um, and the flight to the farthest reaches of Russia to the east, places like Kamchatka or uh, Sakhalin or Vladivostok is about the same. So it's a bit um, uh, funny, but puts in perspective the geography of this place to think that I could get on a plane and fly to Los Angeles in about the same time that I could get on a plane and fly to um, uh, a bit of land that's still in Russia. Um, So I I can't say that I was able to fully uh, kind of uh, capture or or make my way through all of the geography of Russia, even in my eight years here and, and, and not for the book, either. But um, that's one of the things that makes this place so endlessly fascinating. There's so much always to explore in the most immediate kind of physical, literal sense, right? There's just so many, uh, not just nooks and crannies, but kind of whole whole regions, uh, places like Yakutia, a region in the far north that's seven times the size of France. I mean, there's just such vast uh, geography that um, it gives the uh, experience of reporting in Russia, a kind of endless quality that I find quite alluring. I think, you know, your book is particularly compelling because of the stories it tells of ordinary people uh, within the country and under a system that, uh, you know, sort of pressures them into making uh, sometimes quite extreme compromises and puts them in, in difficult situations. And in Ireland, I think we often uh, read about Russia predominantly as a sort of outside threat. And, um, you know, I was reading over recent reports of Russian submarines in the Irish Sea and Russian bombers in Irish airspace and concerns about the transatlantic cables. And we rarely uh, get the kind of intimate and complex accounts of everyday life within the country um, and the gray areas that people have to navigate. Um, And I think you begin the book uh, talking about the Levada Center and this uh, theory of the wily man, which I think is familiar uh, in Ireland and probably in all countries of, uh, you know, an individual trying to make it um, in any way they can and you sort of, you know, working the system um, for either their benefit or to achieve what they can. So maybe you want to read us that that passage about the wily man. Sure. So it was shortly after I arrived back to Moscow in 2012. I had come here previously as a student and then after university, but it wasn't until 2012 that I moved here to work uh, as a journalist full time. And 
Shortly thereafter, I discovered an essay that had been written many years before, in the year 2000, in fact, the year that Putin first took power as president, by a sociologist named Yuri Levada, who was really the preeminent uh, path-breaking sociologist in the late Soviet Union and, and into post-Soviet Russia and founded this independent sociological center you mentioned, the Levada Center. So in 2000, he wrote this essay called uh, The Wily Man, which was his attempt to try and understand a new kind of personality type that had emerged from the rubble of the Soviet collapse, but who actually had many of the traits and inherited the worldview and kind of habits of mind and action of uh, Soviet man uh, and or woman uh, has, as he or she uh, was known. So in the essay, Lavrata wrote of the wily man being someone who, quote, not only tolerates deception, but is willing to be deceived and even requires self-deception for the sake of his own self-preservation. Uh, Lavrata saw uh, the wily man as a, a clever and resourceful creature, quote, he adapts to social reality, looking for oversights and gaps in the ruling system, looking to use the rules of the game for his own interest. But at the same time, and no less important, he is constantly trying to circumvent those very same rules. So I came across that essay, uh, like I said, in 2012 or, or 13, and it immediately held great explanatory power for me. It felt like a, a kind of key that opened up the world and, and the people that I was seeing all around me and helped me make sense and gave me a kind of intellectual or, or sociological framework for understanding actions and behaviors and habits that otherwise uh, I found somewhat confounding, interesting, but I, I couldn't quite uh, make sense of and, and didn't compute necessarily in my own mind and, and not in my certainly journalistic framework, which oftentimes saw Russia as split between Putin the dictator and uh, the citizens whom he uh, oppresses. And that is uh, an oversimplification and, and, a, and a bit of a false dichotomy. And I think I, I understood that fairly quickly upon my arrival to, to Russia, but didn't understand exactly what a better description would be. And, and the Wily Man essay helped point a path uh, forward for me. And I'll read just a, a few paragraphs from a bit later in the book's introduction where I talk about how I uh, used that Wiley Man essay as a kind of prism or lens for making sense of, of Russia and the people I, I was encountering. In Moscow and in my travels around the country, I met fiercely proud and brilliant men and women, activists, economists, journalists, business owners, who believed the best if not the only way to realize their vision was in concord with the state. It was hard to believe they were wrong, nor was I confident I would choose any differently. There was my friend with a graduate degree from Oxford who came back to Moscow to take a job in a state-run think tank, a place where smart young professionals thought up good ideas, half of which were implemented and the other half of which, those with more worrying political implications, were discarded. I would periodically have lunch with a youth activist who had been unable to resist the offer to take a seat in Parliament, where he was quickly told to vote along party lines, as the Kremlin dictated, or risk losing the funding for his youth programs. For a while, the most fashionable job in Moscow was working on state-funded urban beautification projects. 
expanding pedestrian zones, renovating city parks, launching bike-sharing programs, rethinking public transportation routes. Such initiatives made the city undeniably more pleasant and humane. With time, similar efforts expanded to other cities around the country. Even in the absence of larger democratic reforms, if anything, Russia's politics tacked in an opposite, unmistakably regressive direction, its cities became more desirable, attractive, and enjoyable places to live. A debate emerged among my friends in Moscow. Is it laudable to lend one's talents and expertise to the state so as to achieve real change on a local level? Or does this only help perpetuate an unjust and inefficient system? The question was never really settled, but surfaced time and again, a referendum on the permissibility of compromise that repeated at regular intervals. Does harnessing the resources and power of institutions you ultimately consider malevolent to achieve something good mean the joke is on them or you? Although the gulag is a mostly unhelpful metaphor for understanding Putin's Russia, I found myself returning to one thing that Solzhenitsyn wrote about from the camps. If you're stuck inside an unjust system, isn't cheating it a bit here and there for your own purposes an entirely rational, even virtuous response? The more I thought and wrote about the ways people actually live and work in Putin's Russia, the more I realized it was largely impossible to separate them into two camps, the oppressed and the oppressors. Yes, there were those obvious victims and those whose resolute, unyielding positions brought them great frustration and hardship, just as there were the unambiguously corrupt and sadistic who used the state's authority merely to line their pockets or who got off on enacting all manner of petty cruelties. But most of the people I encountered were neither. They were strivers, nimble and resourceful, who usually set out with virtuous and thoroughly understandable motives. What fascinated me were the compromises and prevarications required in bringing those initial motives to life, and how, over time, those concessions can change a person and the very rationale that motivated one's actions in the first place. Thanks so much. One of the, I think, the wiliest uh, people in the book is probably uh, Oleg Zubkov, um, who I couldn't help but thinking of as the Tiger King of Crimea. <laughs> I know that the book, I think, came out before uh, the Netflix show became so so popular. Yeah, I, I presaged. I, I should have, you know, try and sell sell the TV rights uh, ahead of time if I only knew there was such a market for eccentric, flamboyant um, safari park owners who wrestle with tigers. Absolutely. So do you want to uh, just give us a, a, a short sort of um, sum up of your experience at meeting Zubkov and, and of his story? Sure, sure. Oleg Zubkov uh, is the owner of, of two safari parks in Crimea. He thinks of himself and, uh, and identifies as, as Russian, uh, born and, and raised in uh, Russia at, at the time of the late Soviet Union. Uh, ended up in, in Kiev, still during uh, Soviet times, and finally came down uh, to Crimea uh, in the 90s, where he opened up, along with his wife, um, these safari parks that became quite uh, successful, especially the one where I visited him called uh, Taigan, set in the kind of uh, inland plain uh, in, in uh, Crimea. And Zubkov is just a natural showman through and through, and a, a colorful guy, irreverent, profane, um, zany, kitsch, sometimes over-the-top cheesy, but with a real magnetism uh, to him that, that I found 
that made him just a compelling uh, character, a, a fun person to spend time with and, and a fun person to, to write about. But what ultimately drew me to him or made me think he was a fitting character for the book is the way he went from being someone who very much in a over-the-top, as is his want, raw-raw way, supported annexation of Crimea by Russia in 2014 to being someone who's now totally uh, disappointed and disillusioned by Russia. And it was that journey that interested me uh, the most. And I went to see Zubkov at his park in Crimea, and as I detail in in the book, getting to Crimea these days is itself uh, a small saga uh, for understandable reasons, given the contested nature of the peninsula and how Ukraine and just about the rest of the world considers it to, uh, Crimea to be illegally annexed territory. You, you need to go through a long uh, bureaucratic rigmarole to go via mainland Ukraine uh, and then into uh, Crimea uh, proper. So it was a rather circuitous route uh, that led me into Crimea and then finally to Zubkov's Park. But he picked me up in this uh, essentially golf cart that had been outfitted like a kind of mock police car with a uh, siren uh, and uh, loud, uh, loud, you know, horns blazing. And we drove through the park and, and you know, rather than doing an interview or, or rather our interview, instead of being, you know, behind a desk or over a pot of tea or something like that, began as we were speeding through the open savannah, essentially hopping out of the golf cart to go run up to uh, lions and, and Zubkov increasingly um, emphatically imploring me to get into right up close to the lion so he could take uh, my photo. I was protesting. I, I write about this in, in, in the book, uh, our kind of madcap tour through the lion enclosures, or not even really enclosures, really, because they're just uh, running around out in the open. And, and Zubkov is a complete uh, natural with them in a way that adds to the terror of the moment, really. He's like taking off his plastic slipper and throwing it at them and uh, wrestling them to the ground, slapping them on the cheek playfully, uh, encouraging me to do the same. And, and I absolutely re refused. The most I agreed to do was for one millisecond get up behind a, um, uh, uh, a lion so he could take a photo that I guess I'm glad I do now. Uh, have and, and can um, pull out every now and then to, to, to boast, you know, show the grandchildren one day that I um, was once a, you know, brave, um, intrepid young um, reporter. But when we did get to talking, uh, it was interesting to hear from Zubkov exactly when and how he came to realize that he had been, as he sees it, sold a false bill of goods, that he thought he was joining one Russia, and it turned out the real Russia that awaited him was something entirely different. And as he admits and, and talks to with, uh, about with a great degree of openness and, and um, in a way that was really interesting for me, he, and I think like so many people in Crimea, essentially thought they were joining not so much present-day Russia, but as returning to some kind of foggy, mythical, not necessarily Soviet in the sense that people were still kind of true-believing communists or anything like that, but returning to a big, powerful, coherent, and competent state that would take care of them and unite them all together. And it was more a mood than anything particularly policy or even politics-related that motivated Zubkov's early enthusiasm for annexation. And it was 
when he found himself in Putin's Russia circa 2014-15, he understood that the picture on television and the picture that existed in his head was very different than reality on the ground when local corrupt authorities now under the flag of Russian administration came to his parks looking to shut it down, sending the veterinary service, the tax service. He got into a long-running feud with the Crimean uh, prosecutor. At one point, one of his baby tigers was confiscated as it was being transported by ship across the strait to mainland Russia. I went uh, to court with him one day in Crimea, where the subject of the hearing was what to do with Zubkov's baby tiger, uh, Altai. So as concerns his business and, and therefore just his, his life as um, an entrepreneur and, and businessman in, in Crimea, he faced nothing but nonstop uh, headaches. He spent well over 100, almost 200 days uh, a year in various court hearings for one absurd matter after another, feeling like the authorities were trying to essentially grind down his will and, and grind down uh, his business. So there was something very just uh, colorful and zany and fun about uh, Zubkov. He's a wild dresser. His parks are decorated in this totally kitsch way with like huge mahogany elephants and uh, prints of tigers uh, on the bedsheets uh, in the little hotel where I stayed on the property. But there's also something quite you know serious. The stakes uh, are quite uh, high for him. He feels like everything he built over the past uh, 20 years is now under threat because of the Russian administration that he admits he was once so enthusiastic to join. And he's he's so direct and frank, I think, in the acknowledgement of that. I think he, there's a quote where he actually says, you know, this has happened with our participation. And he, he keeps that truck with the pro-Russian banners as sort of almost a, you know, a reminder of, of how he was, you know, kind of fooled by uh, the propaganda and, and became a part of it, uh, you know, a part of spreading it um, himself. And when he was speaking about how if there was a, you know, another vote or if, if this happened again, he would probably prefer, you know, to remain part of Ukraine, which I think reminded me very much of of sort of the post-Brexit reality and, you know, the, the idea of people sort of Googling what Brexit was directly after the vote and the question of, you know, what would happen if, if there was another chance for a referendum. But I think that acknowledgement of being complicit in something and being fooled, which is difficult to admit, but I think he articulates very powerfully. Um, and then I think in contrast, we have the story of, of Dr. Liza, who, you know, um, began as a sort of independent maverick humanitarian, uh, introducing hospice services in, in Moscow and, and feeding the homeless, um, and becomes wrapped up in that propaganda machine herself and is entering, you know, conflict zones in, in Donbass and, and traveling to Syria um, in an effort to bring treatment to children or, or sort of in, in the case of Donbass to rescue children in the midst of this very brutal conflict. Um, but, you know, has to, has to sort of toe that line of becoming in some ways a mouthpiece for, for, you know, Putin's propaganda machine. Um, and I found her story, you know, um, obviously tragic because she, she dies, um, on a flight to Syria, um, but also in in the way that 
that that that huge compromise that she had to make um and that difficult question of uh you know whether saving children um you know the few children that she did uh emboldened you know or or justified um you know russia's russia's sort of narrative and putin's narrative as you mentioned sadly she and I never met for 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 reasons that are profoundly tragic that she died in 2016 on this um, would-be uh, humanitarian mission organized by the Russian Defense Ministry flying to Syria and, and I re- started reporting the book sometime after that I did speak to her husband and many of her close friends and colleagues and associates so I got a pretty deep understanding of her and, and in fact uh, she was a rather prolific diarist and, and journal keeper, many of which she published and even more were published posthumously. So perhaps even more instructive for getting to know her than conversations with even her husband and friends were these diaries that um, I read and, and were quite detailed and extensive. But the nature of her compromise felt um, the most... Uh, compelling to me, I guess you could say, or, or, or it was the hardest for me to argue with. It was the hardest for me as, as a writer to kind of bring some moral judgment to, even though throughout the book I tried to write without much moral judgment. I mean, of course, I'm ultimately a subjective human being with my own sense of the world and, and right and wrong and a kind of moral compass that I'm sure comes out, even if I'm trying to quelch it. Nonetheless, uh, writing is a very subjective act. Uh, but in the case of Dr. Lisa, I felt all the more that um, the compromises she made, even which at times could look quite um, uh, distasteful and, and, and did to many, her proximity to the Kremlin, to Putin personally, the way that she allowed the Kremlin to look the kind of benevolent, merciful actor in the middle of a war that it had done so much uh, to spark and to this day uh, continues uh, to fuel. A lot of people saw something deeply uh, cynical and hypocritical uh, in that, in the way that she lent her credibility and, and her authority to the Kremlin in that way, essentially giving them a kind of moral cover for something deeply immoral. And I understand all those arguments and uh, and certainly wouldn't, wouldn't dispute them, uh, agree with them, but she seemed to have such a genuine and true focus on those in need, on, on the side of the weak, as she uh, put it. And that felt not like an act to me. That wasn't a calculation. There was nothing uh, kind of conniving uh, or, or cynical about that, in fact. Uh, she really did have this almost bizarre for most people, and that's why some people call her saintly. She had this strange uh, compulsion uh, to help people uh, who were in circumstances that left them vulnerable, people uh, who were uh, trapped, sick, and injured in a war zone, or before that, people who were dying of terminal diseases in Moscow and weren't getting any help from the state, homeless population at the city's train stations who otherwise were not uh, receiving any services. So that is a through line in her life and it's hard to argue with it or find anything uh fake or or cynical uh about that and and if anything i feel like dr lisa knowingly traded her reputation and and uh her image in the eyes of many 
for this ability to help more people. She knew what she was doing and she knew that it was costing her something in terms of her own credibility and her own support among many of Russia's, say, liberal intelligentsia, people who were her friends and her supporters. She knew that she was losing their support, but I think that she felt like she really had no choice. It wasn't even a choice for her, I guess, is the, is the way I would put it. It wasn't a calculation. It was, if there's an opportunity to help people, you have to do it, full stop. I think it's really interesting that, you know, the book starts off, um, you know, with this introduction to the Levada Center and in the first instance of, of polling and, and asking, you know, people what they think. Um, and this new idea that, you know, to control people, you need to know them. Um, and that being sort of the approach of, of maybe the Putin system. And, and that was in a very, I said, maybe a more innocent time before, uh, you know, polling has become so controversial and the collection of data and the spread of, you know, the use of it to spread disinformation. Sure. The Levada Center is still around. It's run by a former student and now quite renowned and beloved sociologist in his own right, a man named Lev Gudkov, who was quite generous with his time and, and the center's data with me when I was reporting uh, the book. And it's just an all around wonderful guy. Levada himself died in 2004. So the center has been run by Gudkov ever, ever since. Um, it's been progressively shunted further and further to the margins, but still is around and still doing very important work. It's the only independent um, polling and, and sociological research institute left in the country. So it's really um, a, a, a quite literally unique uh, organization and a very essential one. And its research does matter, especially in political circles in, in Moscow and the other big cities. Levada Center just a few days ago, um, came out with the results of latest poll showing that Putin's popularity had slipped to under 60%, the lowest number in just about the entirety of his 20-year rule of, of, of the country. And that number was reported widely. The Kremlin was forced to comment on it. Uh, by say reporting widely, reported widely within the constellation of independent media that, that tends to pick up on figures coming out of the Levada Center. But of course, there's now the internet, Facebook especially, is is much more a kind of civic and political platform in Russia than it is in other places. It's really become the kind of town square uh, for many people. And, and so news like that of Putin's falling rating was something that was heavily discussed uh, and dissected uh, on, on Facebook. Um, it is interesting the way that Levada Center is, is still around, but you see that. You see these kind of um, outcroppings of independent free thought still left in Russia that are able to hang on by various um, measures, whether luck, ingenuity, clever sources of financing and structuring their uh, operations, and, and Levada Center is one of them. One of the more interesting uh, phenomenon about Putin's Russia and the way the Kremlin thinks about these questions is the fact that the Kremlin itself, as part of the Federal Guard Service, that's equivalent to the American Secret Service, the people who guard uh, Putin, grew out of the KGB. It was a department in the KGB in the Soviet Union. Now it's an independent security agency, um, which uh, has great access, of course, and, and uh, importance in the Kremlin, just given its proximity to the president. So the, the FSO, as this uh, agency is called, has its own 
private secret polling agency uh, that goes out into the regions and carries out sociological polls that it doesn't publish. There are a number of public facing uh, research and polling agencies that do publish their work that show much better and more favorable results for Putin and, and Kremlin policies than say the Levada Center. They're really kind of public cheerleaders for the Kremlin, always trying to put a advantageous spin on events for the Kremlin and, and make Putin seem more popular or his measures more popular than they might otherwise actually be. Um, but there's this other polling center run from inside the Kremlin with specialists who go out into the regions and, and talk to people and presumably do actually get as much as one can, right, the real the real scoop and maybe know actually the real levels uh, of um, distrust or, or uh, anger or, or um, disapproval about various Kremlin policies, information that they both uh, very much value if they've created this whole center to obtain it, but also keep secret, which which shows, I think, in, in one sentence, right, the attitude of those in power to this sort of polling data. They know enough to know that they need it, but they also know enough to know they don't necessarily want it getting out. The accounts of you going on Russian TV and repeatedly going on, I think it's a four-hour chat show that was, you know, uh, to be used, as you described, I think, as a type of pinata, um, as this, you know, American uh, foreign journalist in Russia and, and, you know, barely getting a word in edgeways, uh, and yet going back with the hopes that, you know, convinced that you could somehow break through that and, and sort of say something that, you know, uh, had an impact. Uh, how I was interested how that, that um, you know, system of of disinformation and and that you know pressure to to be compromised and and to somehow you know find yourself um, complicit in in that sort of machine, how that experience is for for journalists um, in the country, uh, you know, and not just I guess the pressures that are applied to journalists inevitably but also concerns for the security of sources when you're reporting, you know, and, and um, how that can affect um, the stories you can tell uh, and whether you, you feel that pressure of compromise ever um, as a reporter. You know, luckily, I'm largely ignored here in Russia as a journalist and, and, and you know, maybe if earlier on, I, I was not exactly aggrieved by that, but, you know, sort of thought it would be useful or, or interesting to have more of a presence as a journalist in Russia. That isn't really the case, especially as regards the, the Kremlin and, and the government and the authorities here. They don't seem to much care or even notice at least me or a place like The New Yorker. Uh, I think they've long ago given up on the idea of positive coverage in the Western uh, press. I think they know without having to pick up an article what The New Yorker is going to say about Putin and, and Russia, rightly or wrongly. Maybe I might actually surprise them, uh, maybe, and I might have a more nuanced uh, take than they would even be expecting. But nonetheless, they don't think there's much point in trying to um, play to or appeal to the Western uh, press and its coverage of of Russia, and so whether for that reason or 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 others, um, I'm not really noticed as a journalist here in in Russia, which I think actually makes my life much easier. It's Russian journalists who are writing in Russian for Russian audiences who face the kinds of pressures 
you named who, who are working in a, a very pressurized and at times dangerous environment. And I have the most um, respect and, and admiration for, for their work. Many of, uh, many of them are, are friends of mine and, and uh, were a big help uh, in reporting this book and in reporting lots of stories I do for The New Yorker uh, as, as well. Um, and it's them who face these kinds of dangers and, and, and difficulties uh, in their work. And uh, knock on wood, I, I haven't and, and, and don't. And so I don't really face those kinds of compromises in terms of what do I put into the piece, what do I put into a book uh, or, or not. Um, and uh, I, I luckily don't have to face this this conundrum. I'd, I'd like to think that when it comes to something like my journalism there, I would be you know, quite um, um, inflexible uh, and, and, and have been at times when various you know, sources or, or, or subjects of reporting right, have, have tried to um, uh, request or, or, or push for something to be removed. I mean, that, in that sense, there is no room for compromise or, or flexibility. But I don't really face it to the degree that Russian journalists uh, do. So in that sense, I'm, I'm lucky to not have to face that dilemma of compromise in its most acute and pressurized uh, form. I mean, not suggesting for a second that you have been compromised as a journalist, but I just know, I think from experiences of, of reporting in Syria, when you are, you know, being taken around by government minders in, in that situation or worried about the security of sources, it does, you know, raise these quandaries of, of you know, the good you can do by reporting a story and the potential harms. And in that sense, maybe um, a compromise rather than, you know, being told what to put in or not sure well the advantage of uh something like a book and just the, the length of the book is that you can be transparent about some of those difficulties like if you're for example being led around by someone with an agenda and you don't really have an alternative just because of the nature of the place you're in and the circumstances you have to kind of be with this government minder as you say something like a book really gives you the chance to come right out and, and say that to the reader. And, and, and uh, I feel like if you're upfront about that and upfront about what you may be missing as a result, then I think you've really done your your job. And maybe you've even given some useful insight into the, read, to the reader about how the reporting process works and, and can be um, constricted or, or, or limited behind the scenes. Uh, as for protecting sources, there I agree with you that that's actually perhaps concern number one, or is, is concern number one for me in much of my work and, and in this book. Um, and there I, I try to not um, surprise people, especially people who may be in difficult or tricky situations. I don't want them to read about themselves or, or circumstances involving them for the first time in, a, in an article in a book. And that's where the wonderful uh, professional and just uh, absolutely saintly team of fact checkers at the New Yorker uh, comes so in handy when I'm writing for for the magazine and they do such a thorough job in backstopping me and in working through all those issues with me and sources before anything is published. So by the time an article appears in the magazine, it's been so thoroughly vetted, including with the people mentioned in the story or who are subjects of the story that I feel that there shouldn't be any, um, from our side, kind of unpleasant um, surprises that we haven't missed anything that could potentially put someone in danger. And, and one of the fact checkers who I work with at the magazine, Anna Kordunsky, uh, came on to check uh, this book. So she brought that same degree of care and professionalism to this 
project and, and we together with Anya worked through a lot of those issues with sources to make sure, just like in The New Yorker, that particularly a sensitive story, but not only all stories really, but particularly those that might hold some danger for sources, that everyone had a chance uh, to, to uh, understand what was being written about them and, uh, and to, to raise any issues well ahead of time before they uh, went to print. Yeah, I've, I've gone through the experience of, of New Yorker fact-checking myself, and it's incredibly thorough. Uh, you know, I think they infamously have even fact-checked their fiction in the past. Um, and I was curious about that, actually, because I think many people are surprised. I was surprised the first, you know, working on my first book, uh, that that culture of fact-checking is, is not as prominent in the publishing industry. Uh, you know, and I think there's an active debate going on at the moment about whether it should be more, you know, sort of more standard for all books to be fact-checked. Uh, it's surprising that, you know, a magazine article that maybe has a, a you know, a shorter shelf life is, is meticulously fact-checked and a book that might, you know, inform um, debates and, and, and understandings for, for such a long period of time are often, you know, go with Luckily, you have a very eagle-eyed editor, which I did, but, you know, that that is not something that's uh, inevitably provided. No, but and, and, and here I should be um, extraordinarily grateful to my editor and publisher, Tim Dugan, uh, in New York, who is one of the few, as I understand it, who has a dedicated um, kind of budget and, and um, stage in the process for fact-checking. And I, too, was surprised coming from the world of magazine writing to book writing and how that actually wasn't uh, widespread. But but Tim uh, does have uh, that built into the process. And, and that was one of the many things that attracted me uh, to him from, from the beginning. And it was um, a wonderful uh, relief to know that I had an editor who understood and, and was able to provide uh, for that uh, stage. And it wasn't something that I would have to kind of sneak in or rush or, or, or do on my own, but it was um, a well-planned uh, and agreed-upon stage of the process. So that, that really gave me a lot of uh, confidence. Uh, That's brilliant to hear. Um, I won't keep you much longer, but I, I did want to ask, um, we're trying to ask all the writers on this series um, what freedom means to them uh, in this moment. And I think um, something that we haven't addressed that's, is, you know, so, I think, uh, thoughtfully um, discussed throughout the book is how trauma and fear have really um, informed uh, or, you know, motivated the compromises that individuals have made, whether it's uh, past traumas of, you know, displacement, uh, mass displacement in Chechnya and, and in Crimea, um, you know, the, the last free priest who was put in an orphanage for the children of enemies of the people and how he sort of, you know, still went ahead and became a kind of rebellious figure. Um, and the reality, you know, that you um, acknowledge in the book of the ongoing persecution of, um, you know, LGBTQ plus communities uh, and, and, you know, uh, the geriatric stage of Putin's system, which you uh, say will likely only become more repressive and, and coercive as it continues. Um, so I guess what, what does freedom mean in this moment in, in Russia and, and how difficult is um, that still for, for groups and, and individuals who are directly persecuted uh, by that, that 
authoritarian system. I think of this quote that I came across in reporting the chapter on Perm 36, the uh, prison camp turned into a museum that was later taken over by the state. But this uh, slogan came from those days in the 90s and, and 2000s when the museum was run by its founders, these really remarkable and admirable local uh, historians in in Perm who set up the museum and uh, and really from 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 ruins and, and turned it into a remarkable memorial complex and they they ran a summer festival for many years in on the site of the former camp called Pilorama, which brought together discussions of history with also discussions about the present. They very much linked the lessons of the past. Uh, with uh, implications for the future or, or the present. And that was one of the many things, in fact, that the state came to not like and, and, and favor at all. And, and, and it was one of the reasons that uh, the state moved to take over the museum. But in any case, the, the motivating slogan of this festival, Pilorama, was called Freedom in a Place of Unfreedom. And that gets to the notion of, of this festival, which was about a free-flowing discussion of uh, ideas on the site of a former prison camp, but also was a kind of metaphor uh, for a wider condition, perhaps. Uh, as you've uh, asked what it's like to um, live and, and work and, and pursue your goals and ambitions, especially when those cut across the interest of the state in Putin's Russia uh, today. It also reminds me of something that uh, a former political prisoner who was held at Perm 36 in the 80s, Mikhail Milek, uh, told me about these quite beautiful moments he could have uh, coming out of the prison's boiler room where he worked shoveling coal on a cold winter's day and looking up at the sky, the trees, the snow, and, and, and really having uh, a beautiful experience. And he talked to me about uh, the serenity and the wonder and the pleasure even that he could have in those small moments just enjoying his surroundings and that gets i think to the heart of this notion of freedom in a place uh, of unfreedom i found something so admirable in what mylock told me even if it as it was so difficult uh for me to imagine there was something so dignified and honorable in the way that freedom was a condition that he set for himself or that he had the power within himself to activate and enjoy and it wasn't necessarily determined by his surroundings. After all, he was a political prisoner arrested for holding illegal Samizdat literature in then Leningrad sent off to a prison camp. So there's something deeply uh, unfree and uh, unjust about his circumstances, but nonetheless that freedom to enjoy the sky, the trees, the snow was something that existed uh, within him and, and, and couldn't be taken away. And that's a lot to ask of someone that shouldn't be the only condition of freedom uh, available to people, not, not at all. Um, but in circumstances where one can't change in the immediate, uh, that uh, baseline or, or, or um, kind of Im the immutable unfreedom of one's immediate circumstances. I found something really uh, inspiring and beautiful in this idea of, of nonetheless finding uh, your own freedom.
And for those communities that are particularly persecuted in, in Putin's Russia, is, is there any opportunity for, for that freedom within unfreedom? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound um, glib uh, about it, and um, I, I don't uh, bring up Mylock's idea or the idea of Perm 36 lightly to say that that is a, is a kind of easy refuge for people who face real persecution and real uh, repression, uh, not at all, right? That uh, I want to be very clear about acknowledging um, the dangers faced by so many uh, people in Russia, especially those who in one way or another confront or, or take on the interests of the state or like in a place like Chechnya, simply fall into a category uh, of people who um, for one reason or another, the state um, arbitrarily decides uh, to target uh, and repress like it did with the LGBT community uh, some years uh, ago. Uh, no, I think it would be um, unfair and unrealistic and glib to, to suggest that, that groups like that or individuals like that simply take refuge in, in the freedom of their own creation in a, in a context of unfreedom. And that's why I think it's so important to be bracingly honest and direct in, in telling their stories, as I hope I have done uh, in part in, in the book and continue to do uh, in uh, in the New Yorker, and I'm, I'm not necessarily sure we can finish on good news uh, here, right? I don't know if necessarily the the skies are are uh, in any kind of hopeful or realistic way lightening um, uh, for those communities in Russia anytime soon. I I, I don't know if the uh, horizons of of those who have kind of conflicting or confrontational political uh, beliefs or activists and so on in, in Russia, if those skies are going to lighten uh, anytime soon, as I talked about in the introduction to the book and we talked about today, throughout our conversation today, the, the overall kind of macro politics of Russia are moving in a kind of backward, more regressive or um, repressive uh, direction. So um, I don't know if, if, if it's possible to, to say anything uh, hopeful or, or, or positive um, on that score, um, only that um, things change here uh, quickly and unexpectedly. I think the Putin system for now, if I had to bet, does look stable and, and durable, even in this time of coronavirus and economic recession and falling oil prices. I think it's still far too early to write these kind of wither Putin articles that have appeared throughout his 20 years in power and somehow he's still here. So I think the smart money has to be on him being around for a while. But if we remember the late days of the Soviet Union, that was a system that seemed uh, eternal and uh, immutable and, and, and forever until suddenly uh, it was gone in a flash. And suddenly then you know, in, in a kind of post-mortem analysis, we could see all of its structural uh, weaknesses and somehow its collapse seemed inevitable, even though no one could see it uh, at the time. And I'm not sure how applicable that historical analogy is or not to, to Putin's Russia, but that's just to say things uh, can look outwardly stable and then change very quickly everywhere, but in this part of the world uh, especially. 
Yeah, and I think when you when you ended the book on the story of the young person who challenged Putin, uh, you know, live on air during that call in, who wouldn't have considered himself an insurrectionist or anyone who particularly wanted to affect radical change, but you know, sort of. He couldn't deny his own potential to sort of call Putin out in that moment and, you know, really expose, I think, a vulnerability um, or a space, uh, you know, for for resistance in that moment. Um, thank you so much, Joshua. I guess maybe if we just end on uh, a recommendation, is there anything you're reading or listening to at this moment that, that you would recommend to listeners? I just finished this remarkable book that I don't think is in any way... Um, you know, underappreciated. It, it, it um, was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2019, but uh, Julia Phillips' uh, Disappearing Earth deserves all the praise and, and more that it's uh, gotten. I think it was one of the New York Times best books of the year for, for last year, and uh, all the superlatives that have been thrown at that book are, are very uh, much deserved. It's uh, uh, the story of um, a number of young women, um, and, and not all young women, though it starts with, with some girls in uh, Kamchatka, this remote um, uh, peninsula uh, in the Pacific Ocean, Russian, but uh, as we were talking about in the beginning of our conversation about as close to Moscow as Los Angeles is. So this really um, remote, forbidding, wild place where Julia Phillips, um, who's American, but spent some time quite enviably on Kamchatka as a Fulbright scholar. Talk about using your Fulbright uh, fellowship to its best um, advantage. Uh, wrote this really just uh, beautiful, evocative, moving uh, book uh, about uh, place and about the interlocking series of lives of these uh, women who, who live there. And I just, um, yeah, thought it was uh, a, d a delightful book. And uh, Kamchatka is a place I've always wanted to go, never managed to finagle a trip there. Now don't know when or if that'll ever happen. But um, when quarantine started, I, I, I finally picked up uh, Julia Phillips' book and 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 uh, gave it a read and, and felt like I had uh, as immersive and evocative a trip to Kamchatka as one could hope for. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Joshua, for all your time and good luck with everything uh, in your reporting. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Joshua Yaffa's book, Between Two Fires, is available now through our festival bookseller, The Gutter Bookshop. Next episode, we'll be speaking with novelist Fernanda Melchor, author of Hurricane Season. Thanks for listening in and thanks to our sponsors. The International Literature Festival Dublin is an initiative of Dublin City Council, kindly supported by the Arts Council.